Welcome to the 441st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome disaster researcher, Samantha Montano, who's the author of the recently published book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And please keep up with COVID Calls information via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. But please don't wait. I'll be wrapping up the regular COVID Calls discussions on March 16th. As of March 1st, 2022, the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center reports 5,963,216 deaths from COVID-19 globally. In Russia, they report 344,655 deaths from COVID-19. The nation of Belarus reports 6,480. Ukraine has reported 112,459 deaths from COVID-19, but that reporting stopped several days ago. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Dr. Alpha Sadu. This appeared in a Time Magazine special feature on Lives Lost COVID, which was first published April 3rd, 2020, and this obituary was written by Billy Perigo. Even in the autumn of his life, Dr. Alpha Sadhu could not keep himself away from the profession that was also his passion. And when he retired in 2017, after 40 years of service, Dr. Sadhu kept volunteering one day a week at a hospital near his home in London. He just could not fully retire, his son Donnie told the BBC. He just loved medicine so much. In March of 2020, as Britain began to shut down in response to the novel coronavirus, that was already ravaging other parts of the world, Sadhu kept volunteering at Queen Victoria Memorial Hospital part-time, doing crucial work behind the front lines to prepare Britain's healthcare system for the inevitable surge. He did not know he would be part of it. Even so, when he first came down with symptoms, his impulse was to prioritize public health over his own, and he resisted his family's urging to go to the hospital as a patient. He did not want to take up a hospital bed, Donnie said, because others would need it. By the time he finally relented, it was too late. He died on March 31st, 2020, at age 68, becoming one of several British medical professionals who died of COVID-19. Born in Nigeria, Dr. Sadhu moved to the United Kingdom to complete his medical training and would spend the rest of his life committed to Britain's National Health Service the taxpayer-funded healthcare system that provides every Briton with free at-point-of-use treatment. He eventually became one of the most senior ethnic minority medical professionals in the country, serving as the associate medical director at a large hospital in East London just before his retirement. But he also kept ties with his birth country. 
He served as chairman of Kwasong UK, an association representing the diaspora community from the state of Kwara in Nigeria. And he was reportedly regarded as a community leader in Pategi, the town where he grew up. He leaves behind a wife, two sons and grandchildren. His legacy fittingly was one of public health and his family hopes the circumstances of his death will help educate others. People really need to take this seriously, Donnie, his son told Sky News, this is not a joke. The obituary of Dr. Alpha Sadhu, who died in March of 2020 in the UK of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest who's no stranger to you if you have been following COVID calls at all. Dr. Samantha Montano is an assistant professor of emergency, manage emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Her book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis is out. And she is also author of a recent essay, Not All Disasters Are Disasters, Pandemic Categorization and Its Consequences, which she co-authored with Amanda Sabat and appears in the SSRC Disaster Studies collection. And she's also the co-founder of a group called Disaster Researchers for Justice, which we will talk about today. Samantha Montano, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thanks for having me. So let me start the way I usually do, getting an update where you are on COVID, how it's looking there. I am currently in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, things are definitely moving in a more positive direction in terms of numbers. Um, we were hit pretty hard with Omicron in January. Um, they About a week ago, the mayor lifted the uh, proof of vaccination requirement um, to go into most businesses. And um, I just saw that they're lifting the indoor mask mandate this weekend. So we'll see. But the numbers are headed in a positive direction. That mask mandate coming off has been one of the, in schools and then also in indoor spaces like restaurants has been one, particularly in New England and the mid-Atlantic states, it's kind of a last gasp of some friction there between people who are, you know, pretty COVID cautious and others who've been eager to open up. I don't know, how's that playing out there in Boston? Is there much friction on that point? Or people at this point have just assumed non-pharmaceutical interventions are going away? Um, I can't, <laughs> when I look online, it seems like there's a lot of friction. I will say when you go places in Boston, there doesn't seem to be much friction. People just automatically show vaccine cards. Everybody just has a mask on. It hasn't been a big deal in the city itself. Um, so uh, certainly, there seemed to be political pressure, um, but, um, you know, the city set various standards for when things would be lifted, and technically, the city is has reached those uh, markers, so. So, you have been, I, I tried to count, I think this is your fifth time to come on COVID calls. Thank you for your Thank time. You yeah, and... Um, but this time is special because we get to talk about your book, Disasterology, and I want to talk about it in 
detail. It's a great book. Everyone should read this book. Um, and before we dive into, into that, there's one more thing, because I read the numbers, and I've been asking experts what they think about the numbers. I'm conflicted about the COVID numbers, not only around the issue of the concern of the undercount, but just how how two plus years into a pandemic, um, how what kind of work the numbers are still doing, and particularly as we're approaching, um, reported by Johns Hopkins at least, a million deaths from COVID in the United States. The last time you were on March 31st, 2021, there were 550,000 998 deaths in the United States. I guess I just want to sort of tell me your thinking about the the what you've been following with COVID numbers and how they're impacting people at this point. Um, I'm not sure that they really are impacting people at this point. Hmm. Um, I think people are probably, I, I don't know, I, this is a generalization, but I think most people are probably pretty numb to those numbers. I don't know that the average person is even really closely tracking those numbers. Um, I think, you know, when you are watching these numbers escalate over the span of such a long period of time, over two years, that they, I think, start to pretty easily lose their meaning. Um, and even, you know, every now and then I'll still see somebody try to attach uh, another disaster's death toll to the daily death toll, right? They'll, they'll be a, this is a 9-11 death toll today in X state or whatever. Um, you know, there's some kind of like last grasps of trying to do that. But I think that kind of the like early days of the pandemic, it was, every single day watching the numbers, looking at charts of where numbers were going. And I, I guess I just see kind of less of that now. I wonder, you know, because you're really attentive to the ways that different categorization of disaster events, the way they initiate different kinds of emergency management responses and policy remedies. And, and so, I mean, just coming back to this numbers issue, um, it's a terrible way to ask the question, but is there any difference in the way that government is going to learn or not learn from COVID based on 550,000 deaths in the United States versus a million deaths? Or, or was, was there ever a threshold point that enacted a different kind of response to COVID. I mean, I, I think that threshold was <laughs> like a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I think like in like the early thousands, 10,000s kind of number, if it, it didn't gain traction and didn't kind of register with people the direction that we were headed uh, or people in, in positions of power, um, the direction that we were heading, I, I don't really know that a distinction between half a million and a million is is going to do that. Um, hopefully, like hopefully it does. Um, but I don't really see anybody talking uh, about it that way, really. Hmm. And what about the discourse at the, if you think of it as, you know, 50 disasters, 50 states or 57 disasters of states and territory, however you want to think about it, um, municipalities, um, Emergency management units at those locality levels are learning differently based on the scale of loss there. I guess I'm trying to get at an issue of sort of federalism and the way people are either thinking of this as a national 
thing. I don't think most Americans have thought much about it as an international thing. Um, or is it a state or local issue? Um, I think like the average American, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think they think about it as a national issue. I think a lot of people perceive um the response and the like push to be vaccinated as being kind of a federal push. And then certainly specific distinctions on mask mandates or, or whatnot, I think have been have been more localized and how people have thought about them and responded to them either positively or negatively. Um, in terms of uh, emergency management agencies and how they're responding, certainly that has looked um, varied across the country as, you know, different communities have had different spikes and, and whatnot, um, and how those local emergency management agencies have been locally integrated or not integrated into the response has been, um, I think, a, a pretty local phenomenon. So we're a year into the year and some into the Biden administration in the United States, and, um, we were joking before, I think the State of the Union is on right now. So I'm keeping you from live tweeting about emergency management in the State of the Union, although it's usually kind of a lonely, it's a lonely <laughs> time waiting for a, 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 an official at the presidential level to talk about emergency management. Be that as it may, what a weird disaster to be able to see it span across two administrations. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Um you know, it, it's a, a weird one, though, in that sense, too, in that so much of the response was kind of locked in in the Trump administration, that the Biden administration coming in had a extremely difficult task ahead of them. Um, certainly, there are, you know, uh, ways to critique the response uh from both administrations, obviously, but um, with the Biden administration specifically coming in and having uh, kind of having had time to think about what their response was going to be and seeing how they came in and really faltered right from the start um, in their response and how that has kind of continued uh, even as all of these other uh incidents and, you know, the situation in Ukraine, other disasters, etc., have piled on top of everything, all while also trying to internally rebuild the federal government and, um, you know, deal with those kind of more administrative issues internally. You know, they certainly didn't have an easy task coming in, but, um, you know, there, there's still a lot to critique in the, as we kind of continue on for, you know, on and on in this pandemic. That that lock-in effect is an interesting one because it, um, and I wonder, you know, sort of to go a little bit further with that, is, is, it, is it because public perception of emergency management, preparedness, the whole package, it's kind of locks in at a certain point in the disaster and people just sort of say, well, this is what government does, or there are actual sort of um, trends of action steps taken that it's just hard to deviate from once you know, one government sort of says, this is how we're going to do something like risk communication, or this is how we're going to do um, um, uh, 
compensating people for funerals or whatever it may be. What's the nature of that, that lock-in? Um, well, I think with the pandemic specifically, I mean, you, I think sometimes we underplay the importance of a disaster's narrative as it is happening and, and how that narrative shapes a response. And at the point at which the Biden administration came in, we were already so far into this and the narrative around the pandemic was so solidified that I, I don't even know <laughs> that it would have been possible, like anybody coming in, I don't know that it would have been possible to change the public perception and how media covered the pandemic. I, I don't. Uh, I don't really have another um, example of a long duration catastrophe like this to necessarily really kind of compare this to off the top of my head, but it, it just strikes me that that narrative becomes so locked in and it takes some kind of major shock or jolt um, to be able to shift that narrative, or it takes somebody who is like a, a deeply incredible leader to be able to recapture that attention and change the way um, people are ha have perceived the event. Um, and I also think too, it, in this situation, because it, it, it is a, a global response, but even if we just talk about like the national response, you're the response itself, you kind of lose control of it, right? It, it kind of becomes this kind of machine on, on its own that these various institutions are, are playing into, feeding into. And to be able to shift that response, it, it's not like when you're, you're dealing with a, a, an emergency or, or even a smaller scale disaster where there's a limited number of people and you can get every person in the room. It's just not possible to do when you have a response of this size. Right. Um, so if you haven't done that from the beginning to be able to turn that around mid response is, I, I, I want to say impossible. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't think of an example of, of, uh, of a time where that has even really been done. That's a really fascinating insight about the power of the, of the narrative. And I think about that in terms of some reading I did about the um, attempts to, you know, for people who are, let's say, have bought into anti-vaccine um, narratives. And those narratives are reinforced, of course, by their, their socialization. They're, they're the narratives that are in their church or in their workplace or in their family. And so giving up on it isn't just like changing somebody's mind like giving them new information. They're like, oh, well, I'm now going to go against everything that's being said around the dinner table at my house every night. There has right. to be a sort of so social alternative. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about the at the macro level that when people commit to, and maybe I'm guilty of this too, they commit to a sort of rhetorical strategy or a narrative of the way a disaster is going. Mm -hmm. It may be hard to move away from that even if the data starts to suggest something different. Yeah. I wonder what we can do about that. Well, I think that's an interesting maybe segue into thinking about climate. Um, and so let's talk about your book, Disasterology. Disasterology dispatches from the front lines of the climate crisis, which appeared in the middle of the pandemic. It's hard to promote a book in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I hope you will be doing the road show at some point for this book. It's been hard to you know, also really 
complicated media atmosphere right now um, to break through. But this book did. People have been reading it and discussing it. I want to um, actually want to talk about the first part of it because you you talk about your sort of early days of awareness of climate change. And I'm just going to quote from the early part of the book. You talk about being in school. You say it was a pre-inconvenient truth world and our teacher's understanding of climate change was rudimentary. She explained that since the Industrial Revolution, people in industrialized countries had released so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that the entire climate of the planet was changing. And then you say, um, well, at 12 years old, something like that, that might happen at the bottom of the ocean and high up in the mountains in over a century was too abstract for me to grasp. I also did not believe any of it would actually happen. It's a, it's a fascinating way to start the book. It's really relatable. Um, can you say a little bit more about, about that? I mean, I want to get at why you wrote this book, but I want to start with your own sort of confession about, you know, being in grade school and being confronted with a problem that was so big that you, it was hard to get your mind around. Yeah. I mean, climate change. Well, first of all, let me say I grew up in Maine, uh, which is as a state, a relatively environmentally conscious kind of culture. I grew up on like a coastal town where, um, you know, everybody was recycling and people were like talking about solar panels <laughs> very early on. There were all of those kind of key environmentally friendly um, topics that were kind of a regular part of our culture of life growing up. Um, and so I think when you hear that or you think about that, then it seems like, well, climate change must have been this huge topic of conversation. And it really, to my memory, wasn't. It was mentioned almost casually in um, you know, our middle school science class. And then there wasn't um, anything really past, uh, you know, filling out one of those like carbon footprint activities, um, where you, you know, trace your own individual carbon footprint, there wasn't really much discussion past that point, which, in retrospect, is kind of very weird. Um, and I think, helped kind of lead to a lot of confusion or, or delay in how I understood climate change and the relationship of climate change to disasters um, until, you know, many years later when I was in Louisiana and started to, to see climate change firsthand. So let's talk about that. How did you end up in Louisiana? And you, you write here, very movingly about Hurricane Katrina, not just about the disaster, but just your own sort of reckoning with it. And I want to talk about that in detail, but how'd you get to Louisiana? So um, my high school uh, was doing a week-long spring break trip um, to volunteer in the city uh, after the storm. And I was asked if I wanted to go. And I said, I'm always up for an adventure. So I said, yeah, let's do it. I knew practically nothing about New Orleans, practically nothing about Katrina. Um, I just kind of got on the plane and went. I am now very grateful <laughs> that I did that. Um, but it was relatively spontaneous. And uh, once we got to the city, kind of my perception of why I was there and what we were doing changed radically. Um, and uh, within maybe 72 hours of being there or so, I had decided that I was going to come back and move to New Orleans and help with the recovery long term. 
that's that story is one that probably some version of it a lot of people had that same experience that they were in and around new orleans in the year after katrina so a lot of people were exposed to it what was it about what you were seeing there that made you feel like this could actually be a life's work for you I don't necessarily know that I kind of perceived it as life's work. Um, I grew up in a family and going to a Jesuit high school where social justice was uh, like a driving force in uh, what we were kind of supposed to go out into the world and do. Um, And so I think being in New Orleans longer term and seeing the complexities of the injustices there, I was very focused on addressing those injustices. I wasn't even necessarily thinking like disaster in the process of doing Mm. that. It was very much like we need to fix like this woman's house on this street in this city. And then like, we'll move on to something else tomorrow, but like, like very zeroed in on focus on addressing the like one injustice or the one need right in front of you. Um, And it wasn't uh, even until several years later when the BP oil disaster happened that I even really started thinking about other disasters that were happening. Um, And again, because of, uh, you know, spontaneously where I happened to be um, and having kind of a front row seat to seeing that disaster unfold and starting to see commonalities that it even kind of occurred to me that I was working in like the disaster space. And it took even longer to even understand that, a disaster space like existed or let alone that emergency management was something that you could do as like a job or like go into that, uh, that field. I want to follow up on that in a second, but first, did you, did you um, perceive of Katrina as a climate disaster? Oh no, not at all. Not not? at all. Um, I don't, (laughs) I, I think I mentioned this in the book too. I don't, ever remember anybody saying the words Katrina and climate change in the same sentence. I'm sure somebody did, but that was not in any way the way that I was thinking about it or that the groups that I was working with were talking about it. Many of those groups, in retrospect, this is weird, many of those groups were environmental organizations specifically. Um, They were, you know, doing things like putting solar panels on people's homes once they were rebuilt. They were building community gardens. They were, they were doing all of these, again, classic kind of environmental movement uh, tasks and, um, and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, wetland destruction and all of these kind of like bigger issues in Louisiana, but the words climate change just were barely mentioned. I think that's really important point to make that, um, you know, there were some reporters, I think of Andy Revkin, for example, who were working for big papers who were writing about mm-hmm. climate change on a regular basis, but it was pretty rare. And every news report, and, and you've been, you track this closer than anybody, I think, but every news report um, nowadays, reporters don't have to hedge about the connection between a, a hurricane I mean, if it seems somehow inconclusive, maybe they will talk about the science a little bit. But this mm-hmm. idea that you had to, in the lead of a of a story, talk about the disaster and then also explain 
climate change research. It was too much for journalists to do it at that time. So I'm not surprised that you don't remember people talking about that that connection. What about in 2010? You mentioned you were uh, really involved and in following closely the BP oil spill. You weren't involved in it, but you were you were following it closely <laughs> it after it happened. <laughs> yeah, no, you're off the hook on that one. But um, same. No connection yet, or or how did you were you beginning to see a connection to this sort of bigger global scale disaster? Yeah, there was still a lot of tension. So locally, so I mentioned I, I worked with a couple environmental groups, and we kind of dropped what we were doing in New, New Orleans and went down to the coast um, places like Grand Isle to help the local folks there with kind of whatever they needed in relationship to the response. And um, for them, it was concern about, or for many folks, it it was a concern about the ecosystem, but also an economic concern of of this uh, disaster is going to affect the oil industry, it's going to affect the fishing industry, it's going to affect the tourism industry. So, you know, you have this massive, massive economic impact um, to the major industries in this part of the state. Um, So a lot of the kind of primary focus was just on that economic impact, secondarily on the kind of environmental impact. Um, You know, you started to hear climate change mentioned more frequently um, because of the kind of more direct oil uh, connection. But there was still a lot of tension, especially with national environmental groups coming into Louisiana, coming into really small communities where, you know, everybody in the family worked for the oil industry in some way. That was their paycheck. Um, And so having the environmental, some of these larger environmental groups come in, there was real tension with the locals as those environmental groups kind of expected this to be this turning point where people in coastal Louisiana kind of, you know, wash their hands of the oil industry, which is not (laughs) what happened. Um, As we know, it's more complicated than that, right? And so um, I cite BP as when I kind of fully started paying attention to climate change, Mm. not necessarily because of the oil disaster, but more so just because I was spending time on the coast of Louisiana, which if, you know, if you've been there, you know, as you go, as you drive down there, you see where the roads are eroding into what used to be wetlands and are now open water. You see the Mm. houses up on stilts. You start to learn the kind of complex history for why coastal Louisiana looks the way it does. Um, And then to add on top of that, the oil industry causing this, you know, disaster, um, it, it kind of started pulling together all of these pieces for me personally that I hadn't, I had been kind of so zeroed in and focused on Katrina recovery that I wasn't paying attention to kind of this bigger, much, much bigger problem that was right down the road. <laughs> Thank you.
me just remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Samantha Montano today about her book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis. And one of the sections that it's, it's a great book. It's beautifully written. Uh, people can who even study this a lot can learn a lot from this book. And people who've never thought about what emergency management is can learn a lot from this book. I particularly like the the part at the beginning where you're close to the beginning, where you're describing your work in in post-Katrina New Orleans. And I'm just going to quote one part of it. You talk about um, this sort of absurd, as you describe it, an absurd patchwork government-led recovery process. So something a lot of people don't think much about if they haven't been involved in a in a city level disaster, not to mention now a global scale disaster like, like COVID. Um, but this patchwork process you write about and you say um, there were bare stud offices of little nonprofits were not just full of do-gooders. They were the hubs of New Orleans entire recovery. And those volunteers weren't just helping out, they were rebuilding the whole damn city, you write. That's a kind of a, I think a lot of us had that experience with Katrina. Uh, either if we worked there or not, or if we knew people there, we're trying to follow it. We're like, just kept waiting. We're like, well, when's it it's happening now? When's it happening? The recovery parts happen? Did it start yet? Can you tell us? Can you give us an update? And it seemed to proceed, well, it's still proceeding, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, especially at the time where I had never been involved with, with the recovery of an entire city. I kind of assumed what I think most people assume, which is that when a catastrophe happens, that FEMA comes in and that government comes in and that, you know, people are given resources to help with that recovery and that there is a written plan that people follow and that you kind of move through the recovery relatively quickly and, you know, with relative ease. Um, and I think on the rare occasion that somebody reads a story or sees a story in the news of there being an issue with recovery, I think it's often perceived as, well, something has gone wrong with that one instance, that one community, that one neighborhood, like something went wrong. And that's how I perceived what was happening in New Orleans. I kept thinking something had gone wrong here. Um, and it wasn't, and I started going to other disasters around the country and I started to like question whether something had gone wrong because I saw other communities also struggling through this recovery process, many of the same kind of core issues, um, albeit on different scales. And it wasn't until I went to grad school until I started actually reading the research that I learned, oh no, <laughs> this is the way the recovery system was built. It didn't, it didn't go wrong in New Orleans. It functioned the way it was created to function. And, you know, our recovery system, it follows this limited intervention model where government is limited in their involvement. People are left to their own resources, insurance savings. Um, and then nonprofits are, are meant to fill the gap between what people can afford on their own and this kind of minimal help that government provides. And of course, it's just nowhere near sufficient for, a, you know, a catastrophe like New Orleans, of course, but even much smaller events that happen, you know, because of the inequality and who is most affected, you have uh, people who are low income, you have poor people that are most affected. So all, all of these issues kind of double down on one another, but that is how the system is built. And um, that 
is really frustrating that <laughs> that is the system that we have. Um, I would argue that we need to desperately and very quickly change that approach to recovery and, and change how that system operates. But I do think that there is real value in just having that term limited intervention and knowing that it's not something that you as a survivor are doing wrong and trying to access aid. Mm. It's not something that your community is doing wrong and trying to go through recovery. You're, uh, you're trying to operate in a system that wasn't built for you or wasn't built to do what you think it's supposed to be doing. And I think even just starting at the most basic level of understanding that um, is kind of a, a precursor to us being able to move forward and, and start talking about changes and, um, you know, for there to be public support to change the approach to recovery. I think that about the, um, I think about the, the way that, that what you just described, how that lesson is um, transferable in a much broader way to under, just understand the political economy of the United States. And you, your caution there is very well taken that it's, it's very easy then perhaps to look at a community that may be recovering, quote unquote, recovering slowly and say, why are the tarps still up? And unfortunately in the United States, if those are low-income communities, if those are African-American communities, if those are rural communities, um, it, you find quite frequently you know, a couple of rhetorics emerge. One is, why would anybody live in such a dangerous place? Mm. Obviously, they can't. It's not safe to live here. Why? They, of course, they can't recover. Or a more pernicious one, the sort of long-standing structural racism of American life that says, well, these people, there's something about these people that means that they're just not able to, to cut it. Uh, to rebuild their community after disaster, which of course, you know, you go to certain parts of the American South, the tarps are up. You don't know which storm they're from because people had not been able to recover because they cannot get the funds to do so from the government, private lending. It's a continuation of a cycle of disaster. And so I think about the how that lesson you're drawing, you're describing, you know, coastal Louisiana is applicable in lots of places in the United States, but it's still somehow hard to break through with that narrative, or at least I find it hard. It is really hard. I think one really, really, really important thing is to draw connections from one community to another across the country. Um, the A lot of disaster reporting, I'll just pick on journalists here, uh, researchers do this too, but a, a lot of disaster reporting is kind of this case study format where you know you look at one community in one disaster and I, there was just an article in the New York Times like a week ago that looked at that looks at the recovery of one family in one neighborhood in one city that's experienced a disaster and they kind of paint this picture of you know this like oh this is so sad this family like can't go through the recovery process and it is literally, you can just like copy and replace that story with any community across the country that is going through recovery. It is the same exact narrative, the same exact story every single time. And, you know, it's it's important to tell those individual stories and, and to have a really strong narrative as you're explaining that. But you have to draw those connections across mm. to all these other communities, because we have this tendency, 
uh, in emergency management or, or in disasters to think of every disaster as being really, really unique. And there are certainly elements of every disaster that are unique, but disasters are far more similar than they are different from one another. And in our failure to recognize those similarities, we're failing to make the changes that could help more than just one community across the country. And that's where this kind of much more broader systemic change reform is needed. Uh, otherwise, we're going to just keep telling the, the same story again and again and again. Let me remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Samantha Montano. So this book is written um, in the first person. And that takes guts. Uh, and I think it's, and I want to, I want to sort of point out, you know, a feature of that, which, and we, which we were talking about. And that's why I wanted to start with you in your grade school class is you kind of, by reading it, you allow the reader, it, there's empathy in writing in the first person. Let's put it that way. Because you're making yourself, you're sort of putting yourself that I didn't know this. I had to learn this. And you're telling it in that way. A lot of academics don't like to write that way because it implies that they weren't born knowing everything about their field. <laughs> um, but there's also vulnerability in sort of just putting yourself out there and explaining your own learning process because it shows how your values develop. So I wanted to ask you about that just as a, as a, a choice as an author, because I think it, I think it's a good choice. I think it's it's a kind of a risky choice from an academic perspective. So why did you choose to write this in the first person? I mean, I think it was just <laughs> the easiest way for me to write it. Honestly, um, I had you know many many drafts and outlines of this book many years ago that were nearly more akin to being a textbook, and it just never felt right. It never flowed right. And I thought a lot about who the audience was. I think coming out of grad school, I was very much leaning more towards this like heavy academic writing because that is what I had gotten used to writing. Um, and it took a while for me to even kind of, it, to, for it to even occur to me to write like this. And it was only when I thought about um, when, which pieces of writing I had already done that resonated with people and that I got the most feedback uh, about. And it was never a research article that I had written. Nobody was emailing me about that. It was, uh, you know, an article that I wrote, um, about, uh, gosh, what was it? The 2016 Baton Rouge flooding mm. for Vox. That was the article that everybody shared that everybody wanted to ask me about, wanted to talk about. And so that started me down a path of like, what if I'm not writing this for an academic press? What if I'm not writing this for academics? What if I'm just writing this for everyone? Um, and then from there, I think, um, you know, I'm a big believer that, narrative and storytelling is the best way to communicate that, you know, you can throw every statistic in the world at people, but if you don't have some humanity mixed in there, then you're not going to get very far with uh, anybody. And so it just kind of over many years <laughs> developed into this. And then I think once you start writing in the first person, 
you've, you've got to go all in if you want it to work. Right? Right. There's, there's no way to kind of do this softly. You've, you've got to commit to it and, and go all in. I just want to linger on that for a second because I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting. Well, back in the days when we had meetings like conferences and uh, with disaster researchers and their work is excellent, but very analytical and mm -hmm. maybe even you know, quantitative. And, um, and then, you know, you're talking to them over coffee and their, their values and their stories just start pouring out of them because disaster researchers don't usually go into this accidentally. There usually are strong reasons in their past or their values, commitments to justice, whatever it may be that drive them into this. Um, and I've, I've thought there's so many disaster researchers I've talked to. I thought, God, can you write this as a, can you write a memoir, please? Because I do feel like we would make much faster policy inroads and real changes if the research community was also um, more active in first person narration and honestly just talking more clearly about their values. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't, um, you know, I think there's a lot of institutional pressure. Um, yeah. I mean, when I... <laughs> When I started writing this book, I cannot tell you how many academics told me, don't do that. You'll never get tenure if you write a book like that. And for me personally, I don't really care about that kind of thing, right? Like I'm doing this work very specifically and like I'm very vocal about doing this work because I want to instigate change in how we do emergency management. Um, and that's like the most important thing to me personally. And so I was like willing to take that risk. I think they're wrong also, <laughs> but um, I was willing to take that risk um, in a way that I think, um, you know, some researchers aren't willing to do because, you know, it is risky and especially depending on what kind of institution you're at. Um, and also there's this issue of, um, you know, of being researchers and being scientists and historically people kind of thinking that that means that you can't talk about emotions or that you can't bring your full self to your work, which, uh, again, is just something I fundamentally disagree with. And, um, and again, I, I think like, that's what makes you a good researcher, right? The fact that you mm. have experienced a disaster, that you've lived in communities that have experienced disaster, that you have empathy, as you said, that you have, um, this firsthand experience that, is what makes you care about this. That's what drives you to do this research. And um, I think it's important to kind of be open about that and be upfront about that and explain that to people. I think too, also, you know, this, uh, the failure to do that among many disaster researchers really contributes to a lot of the tension between researchers emergency management practitioners, um, but communities, activists, uh, you know, community organizers working on, on disasters, because, you know, they don't see that connection that you have. I very often remind people that most disaster researchers have an extremely personal connection to yeah. disasters. They're not just random people who decided to make a career out of this. But you know, in defense of others thinking that if we're as researchers, not openly being open about that and sharing that, you know, people won't, won't know. So I think also being really open about that helps to, to kind of build those bridges between the, the different folks that, that are doing this work. So you write about, um, 
you know, Katrina and about Deepwater Horizon, the sort of events um, where we can take stock recent disasters in, in America. But you also write a place called Camp Ellis, in which we get a kind of a glimpse of a future. Tell us about that place. Yeah, Camp Ellis is a very little neighborhood in Saco, Maine, um, which is uh, near the town that I grew up in. Uh, it's the town my parents live in now. Um, and on kind of visits home to Maine, we you know go down to the beach, and one of those beaches uh, is on the adjacent to the Camp Ellis neighborhood. And when you walk into this neighborhood, you immediately see that there is a massive flooding problem. Houses are up on stilts. There is, you know, you know, rock walls everywhere. People have kind of individual mitigation techniques that they have implemented on their own properties. And uh, so as a disaster and flood nerd, I like to spend a lot of time walking that neighborhood, seeing those different techniques. Um, and I started to research the history of Camp Ellis and found that it is really a, a microcosm for risk and for what many communities around the world are experiencing. The flooding, uh, the neighborhood sits at the intersection of a river and the Atlantic Ocean. So immediately you have a flood problem. Um, but there is terrible erosion that is occurring largely due to a jetty that was put in by the Corps of Engineers uh, in the 1800s. This is an extremely old problem that uh, the Corps of Engineers is actively working to address still um, and has been uh, since it was built. And uh, the community is really engaged. There is a, you know, a community group around it. They have town hall meetings about this regularly. Um, there's all kinds of um, attempts at, at getting funding and, and whatnot. Um, and it's, it's this really good, I think, very little kind of story uh, that I think people who read it will be able to recognize their own communities in and kind of start to be able to pull uh, apart these really uh, you know, big concept uh, issues related to how various factors come together to create risk, um, to kind of understand how complex risk is, to understand how complex um, addressing that risk can be, even when you have a community that is well off, that, you know, is right. organizing together, that has political support. Um, to still see those challenges, I think, is a kind of an important example. So let's bring the, the back to COVID then. I mean, even in a place like Camp Ellis or the other places you wrote about in, in New Orleans or the coastal south places impacted by Deepwater Horizon, um, what connections do you see to the kind of phenomena that are making life harder, disaster events, and then the slow-moving disaster of climate change? What connections do you see to, to, the, to the pandemic? Um, well, I mean, you know, all of those uh, factors that make a community vulnerable to flooding or vulnerable to a hurricane, they're largely the same underlying factors that make somebody vulnerable to a pandemic, right? So in, in Camp Ellis, there, um, you know, tourism is a driver uh, for that neighborhood, right? People rent houses there in the summer, people you know, go to the local restaurant and the little convenience store that are there. 
all of those places have been impacted by the pandemic as people travel less or those travel plans change. Um, you know, the fact, you know, looking at communities that are experiencing these other more acute disasters, um, COVID complicates all of that. I mean, obviously these, you know, issues compound on one another, um, help uh, complicate recoveries, help trap communities in those cycles. I mean, it's all connected. Just take a moment here to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Samantha Montano today about her book, Disasterology, and talking about COVID. And so you close the book um, with a discussion of concept of disaster justice. And it's running throughout the book in, a, in the sense that there are these various moments in which you, you sort of, there's the world as it, as it should be, there's the is and the ought, you know, there's the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. And, but you don't describe that in a, in a flat way. You, you describe the nuances and the, and the contexts of that and how it pops up in so many different places, but underlying it is a, is a notion that there's injustice in the way that Americans, and I think by extension around the world, people are being faced with these enormous structural problems that then fall on their own shoulders to deal with. And that could be a factor of their education level or their race or where they were born. So what does disaster justice mean to you? And, you know, you sort of close the book with that as a, a kind of a meditation, but then some action steps. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that this idea of disaster justice is really complex. And I don't, I'll like be very upfront about this. I don't think that I even fully have been able to articulate really what I think that means. I think it's like very much a work in progress for me. But what I will say is that, um, so I, I'm looking at this from this emergency management perspective. So for me, disaster justice would be having a more effective and efficient way of doing mitigation, doing preparedness, doing response, doing recovery. I think there is an even greater goal there of uh, preventing, like preventing disasters from happening in the first place is kind of the most purest form of disaster justice of eliminating those vulnerabilities that lead to disaster. But I think that there's still this need for integrating justice into the way we respond, the way we recover when these events do happen in the absence of that overall prevention. So um, that's the way I think about disaster justice from an EM perspective. Um, I think also it's important to kind of pull at these other articulations of, of justice. So obviously in environmental, the environmental justice movement um, the way we talk about climate justice, the way we talk about racial justice, disability justice, gender justice, all of these other forms of justice um, falling more broadly under social justice. The failure of uh, the, the injustice for each of those is what leads to disaster, right? And so disaster justice for me is kind of this overarching umbrella um, of, of dealing with all of those other injustices and kind of being the, at kind of the, the last moment, um, if there is a way to prevent that injustice from continuing 
to me, that's done through preparedness, response and recovery. Um, you know, we've talked about this and have talked with other disaster researchers about this too. And other disciplines, I think, bring other really important perspectives of thinking about what, you know, a disaster justice looks like. Um, but I think um, from an emergency management perspective, that that's kind of where we're at right now. So, you know, full disclosure, you're you're a co-instigator of a new organization as well, which I'm involved with, and Joki Morumba, brilliant disaster researcher, emergency management researcher, is also involved with, and um, it's called Disaster Researchers for Justice. And uh, we launched this just very recently. So what are your goals for this group, Disaster Researchers for Justice? Well, I think kind of my first and foremost goal is to build an infrastructure for disaster researchers to be able to do the work that they're already doing and the work that they want to be doing as it relates to justice in kind of its many forms. Um, you know, I think we spend a lot of time as researchers talking about what practitioners need to do, what policymakers need to do, what journalists need to do. Um, for us to to change how we deal with disasters. But I also think it's important that we reflect as researchers on what we need to change about what we're doing to contribute to that goal. And um, I think uh, any disaster researcher you talk to is probably has a very long list of why they can't change what they're doing and all of the barriers to those changes. And my hope is that this group tries to take down some of those barriers, um, or at least to build a bridge for researchers to get over those barriers so that they can um, do this justice-related work, which uh, again, mo maybe most disaster researchers, many disaster researchers are already doing work related to uh, disaster justice, even if they're not necessarily framing it in quite that way. Um, and I think having this touchstone group for researchers um, to be able to find others who are like-minded, um, to start collecting resources, to amplify the work that one another is doing, I think that's a really, really important step to then be able to um, go out and be a better resource for communities uh, who could benefit from disaster research, um, to have them better inform the work that we do as disaster researchers. Same goes for practitioners, policymakers, journalists. Um, so, you know, I don't necessarily have one goal. I, I hope, my, I, I guess my intent with this group is for um, for us to build a really solid foundation so that this group continues to exist in the long term, um, that it's not, you know, just some kind of short, uh, you know, yeah. here's three things we're going to do and we're done. This is kind of the long haul for me. Yeah, thank you for that. And, um, and it's a, it's a powerful set of ideas at a number of levels. I mean, one is just the need for collective voice, I think. And, um, I really value the work that environmental reporters do. It's so important. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and it's also important that I think researchers be able to have their research out there as 
individual research products, but it's also really important that to, I'm saying what I think, um, that we have a collective voice as well. And that that collective voice appears in those news articles that people know there's a group of scholars called Disaster Researchers for Justice who have the capacity to do the analytics, but also to stand for something. I think that matters. And um, you spoke about something earlier, just you're talking about tenure. You know, the pressures of the academy are, are um, they're always high, but higher now, I think, than ever in my career. Um, and that also corresponds to a time in which we, we need more, I think, just clear discussion of values and justice from the research community. So you have two contradictory sort of, you know, there's a fear that people put themselves in jeopardy by getting outside of their lane. What do I know about justice? I'm a historian, right? But then you think, well, who would know more about the history of injustice in America than a historian, right? So to try to give a sort of, again, a collective space where researchers can feel very comfortable talking about these, these issues and learning more and learning how researchers and activists not only can work together, but could be the same person. Yeah, I think I that has always been a little bit of like an internal tension for me is that I came from this activism, like community based organizing background and to go into um, doing research there is an expectation that you stop doing all of that. Um, and I never stopped doing it. I just kind of did it very quietly. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe was a necessity to an extent. Um, but I also think that given the urgency of uh, the needs uh, around the country and around the world related to what we study, that it's, um, well, as we say, we, we have a moral obligation to do more, to speak up, um, and to be able to kind of pull, you know, the, the side that many of us have uh, of this activist side in with our, our researcher side. So the organization is Disaster Researchers for Justice, and you can find it, disasterresearchersforjustice.com. Just launched last week. People are signing up, and some initial actions will involve work advocating for a COVID Memorial Day, a COVID, uh, a thorough governmental COVID investigation, and undoubtedly some call for action related to the Ukraine crisis that's unfolding right now, which is a set of disasters inside of a war, a pandemic happening in the middle of a war zone, and we can't even get pandemic statistics out of Ukraine now because of what's going on there. So. There's that. And then just, again, get this book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. What are you writing next, Sam? I don't know. <laughs> I'm taking a break. Fair I'll enough. let you know. I You'll be that. the first to know. I doubt that. I doubt that you're taking a break, but that's okay. Um, well, let me just remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although these days you can catch COVID calls kind of around the clock. And um, we'll look for you at the next COVID calls discussion. Sam Montano, keep up the great work. It's great to work with you and learn from you. Appreciate you being here. Same to you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls.